You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So I didn't disclose Eileen's going to give my eulogy when I'm dead because it was just so good. All right, I'll apologize for my voice because allergies in Seattle suck. So I'll just say that, as beautiful as this city is. And sadly, you'll be seeing me every morning for the next two days. So we'll say that that as well. And uh, thank you guys for uh, for having me. It's an honor. So, and thank Ortho for sponsoring this session and breakfast. And you guys keep eating so you don't have to listen to me, which is good. Uh, this is a session that uh, is, again, obviously sponsored by Ortho, written by Ortho, designed by Ortho, and spoken by me. So off we go. And anybody who has any questions, make them your questions, and we'll have at it. Okay. So... I will say, you know, when uh, Orthoderm has rebranded and decided that the commitment to dermatology on all levels is going to go full steam ahead, they have done a great job of medical education on all levels. They have done a great job of being present and accounted for in all the meetings. And especially for, for all of us, you know, the, the commitment to getting patients their drugs has, has reached an all-new level. So I would, I would definitely, you know, reach out to those you see from Ortho at the conference and thank them for putting their foot on the gas in the right direction. I think that's, uh, and that's just coming from us. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to talk a little bit about two drugs, Onexin and Retin-A. And if, if you've been to a product theater, and I know a lot of you have, it sounds like a commercial. It's a theater for the uh, sublime, if you will. I'm going to try to actually make it entertaining. And Tony and I were laughing in the back. We said, we're going to bring acne uh, like Justin Timberlake. We're going to make it sexy again. So, okay. So again, just uh, a little bit about Ortho, what they've done. They've, they've obviously brought some new things to market. They've got uh, a couple new drugs in the pipeline. More importantly, is they, they are doing a lot with education, and the Aspire program is a scholarship program working towards uh, sponsoring those with dermatologic conditions and getting them into uh, school funding. So it's, again, it's a, it's a good program that they've got working in our direction. Okay, how many of you were born after 1980? Holy crap. Okay. Um, okay. So, who remembers Retin-A Micro before it was Retin-A Micro? No, you're lying. You guys are full of crap. So, Retin-A was one of the original dermatology drugs. It was like toothpaste for acne back in the day. And it's making, obviously, not only a comeback, but it's, it's in a formulation and in a vehicle that we can talk about in a new way, but I, I grew up with Retin-A. A lot of us grew up with Retin-A in our old days. I mean, I'm 51 now. All of a sudden, I'm old, apparently. But the idea is Retin-A, in its newest form, has its uh, potential to recapture the acne market. And so we'll go over why. So a lot of you know about acne. You don't have to hear the stats, but you know, 80% of adolescents with acne, it's actually a pretty big number. And when you think about you know, the peak age of 17, Many of us used to think acne was 13 to 17 and done. Now acne is age-wide, right? And we see the shift in acne from forehead and temples in their teens to lower face in women in, in their 20s to everywhere in their 30s. I mean, acne is not a disease you grow out of anymore. Unfortunately, you know, in the insurance era, it used to be that retinoids were not covered after age 26, which fortunately has, has taken a, a back seat now. 
because there are so many adults who have needed authorization for retinoids that we can actually have a good time getting it covered. It's not, a, not the struggle that it used to be. But that being said, you know, we grade acne based on what we see, but also by counts and also by morphology. And then, you know, like we all tell our patients, acne has flavors. It's like ice cream, right? You know, you may have papules and pustules here, you may have comedones here, but the old days of thinking that retinoids took care of comedones and antibiotics took care of, of the inflammatory component, those days are also gone because we've learned a lot more about what subclinical inflammation is all about. This I also find very interesting because when you see patients with skin types four to six and you see a lot of the re-acne that is smoldered and a lot of the scarring and a lot of the post-inflammatory pigment, it makes you think, okay, we should have done something about this when it was time. And you guys have all seen non-compliant patients and you remind them, you don't want to look like pizza when you're 30, you want to do something about this now. So that's again, I think, part of the discussion topic of where retinoids fit, where does acne therapy become all over the face and not just spots or episodes or on a bad day. <clears throat> all right, so the idea is to, when you do a clinical research trial about acne, you know, you walk in the door, you make your assessment, you do the counts, you grade, but these are measures of improvement. And I, the reason I bring this up is because it's the difference between saying, does a drug work or did the patient get better? Or in a research, research trial, did they make endpoint? Because if they made endpoint, they're a treatment success in a trial. But in, a, in the clinic, we don't stop at the endpoint of 12 weeks or 16 weeks. We say, keep going. Off you go. Let's just go and, and pass whatever time frame. So let's get to the point where you're better. So I always want everyone to just take a step back when we say, does the drug work? Because you need to redefine what work actually means. And you know, some of that also goes back to this discussion topic of you know, why we treat acne in the first place, right? Because you'll see plenty of patients who come in, they don't look you in the eye, you know, the parents are doing all the talking, you know, they're, they're, you know their faces, they're concerned when they look in the mirror and they see acne only and they don't see their own reflection in their personality. And even more so, the, the assessment comes back to what we tell them and they're looking for validation of that there's something we can do for them. Not just, oh, I have acne, you know, I'm going to live with it, it's okay. I think, too, I mean, with all of the discussion now about atopic dermatitis and psoriasis and all these heavy-duty diseases that have biologics, we can't forget the basics of acne where anxiety and depression are the mainstay of that age group, right? And again, they're the ones who, they don't engage, you know, they, they text more than they talk, they don't look you in straightforward, and more importantly, they don't care about what they look like because what they're doing now isn't in their mindset for what they're going to look like when they're 30. Okay. So again, patients may come in with a little bit of, of curveball. You know, they, they may have persistent acne. They may have something else that's inflammatory, a couple of nodules here and there. Some, some females may have a little bit more menstrual flare and you'll, you'll, you'll adjust their therapy accordingly. You know, obviously the patients of childbearing status, you'll treat differently. And then you always want to make sure that you're not missing polycystic ovary disease. You're not missing anything that's adrenal-based, anything pituitary-based. These issues are interesting because, you know, unfortunately in the teenage years, you have to think about this. I think, I've got 13, 14-year-olds now. They're saying, well, I'm under a lot of stress. I'm like, really? You're stressed? What the hell? So, you know, I, I just find this very interesting now that these are these are issues of the adolescent population. But, you know, a lot of younger girls are using cosmetics. 
you know, they're, they're in tune to the moisturizing and, and cleansing needs. So these are things you need to talk about with all age groups now, no matter what, when it comes to acne. The other thing, too, when it comes to skin of color, and again, you look at the darker skin types, you look at females, lower jaw, lower chin, you know, lighter skin patients, you know, maybe more on the upper face. Talk to them about why sunscreens are important, why photoprotection is necessary with acne, and why they need to treat through the disease so that they're not left with, with scarring. And especially, you know, again, the fair skin types, they don't want to look red later on. They don't want to have more scars. And then the darker skin types, of course, their main concern is how do I get rid of the blotchy spots, right? And the number one thing you want to remind them, treat while you have a chance so that we don't have to deal with this later. Okay. And then again here, you know, the impact of, about different skin types is very important because, again, you know, the social functioning, the, again, ability to look in the mirror, a lot of patients who are very concerned about the leftovers of acne, these are things that we have a chance to treat when it's time, not when it's too late. Okay. So how do we make acne individual, right? I mean, not just making it sexy again, but how do we make it important to the patient's lifestyle, to their routine? How do we talk to them about you know, what do you need to do every day? And I was always a believer that you, have, you give them something to do all over their face every day, just like toothpaste, and you give them something for spots when there's episodes. Now the paradigm has shifted to let's do everything every day, or it's shifted back to let's, you know, just let's treat when we have to. But I think individual patient needs have to be discussed in the room before you start thinking about therapy. More importantly is, again, take into account their age, skin type, anything else that's going on in their life. And then, of course, remind them that if they don't do something about it now, they need to, they're going to wish they had when it's, when it's too late. The other thing I'm finding, too, in this age of $70 copays and high deductibles is I don't see patients back very frequently anymore. I'll, I'll say, look, you come back, as long as they're not on antibiotics or anything systemic, I'll say, I'll see you back in three months. And I don't want to see you back in a month for you to bitch at me, put me on Yelp and say, I didn't get better because you didn't use your meds. So you come back in three months, and if you're not better, that's your fault, not mine. And you'd be amazed how many patients would be like, I don't think I like you. So. Okay. Anyway, sorry about my voice again. <clears throat> Thank Howard for making me a nice tea. It's, it's, it's actually working. It's good. So let's talk a little bit about Onextin. Okay? And Onextin's making a, not only a comeback, but it's, it's never left, which I think is also very important. Onextin is the survivor of the old benzoclin duac wars, which many of you are too young to remember. But uh, those were the days when, when Dermic and Stiefel used to make two competing products of benzoyl peroxide and clindamycin. They used to talk about vehicle, they used to talk about the fridge, blah, blah, blah. Then there was a drug called Acanya, which blew them both out of the water. And then Onextin became the better Acanya, and it has a really nice base. So that's where we're at with, as far as branded combinations. Now, the reason benzoyl peroxide and clindamycin play nicely in the sandbox is because benzoyl peroxide prevents, I mean, slows down resistance channels to clindamycin. It also potentiates the antimicrobial and the anti-inflammatory actions of clindamycin. So that's why that combination is not only, you know, compatible, but it's essential to putting the two together. I rarely write clindamycin solution anymore out of choice. I mean, I'm sure patients get it by generic substitution, but my preference is for them to have this because not only is it in a better base, but it makes more sense to preserve the, the, the gains of the two agents together. So obviously, Onexin is, you know, again, it's indicated for acne 12 and up. 
you know, it's contraindicated. Anyone with clindamycin, you're not going to know that until some patients get treated. It's contraindicated, obviously, in, in issues with colitis, of course. And, you know, the issue of pseudomembranous colitis, I mean, this is obviously a disclaimer. I, I haven't seen it. I mean, you, you, you may want to watch for it, but, you know, you, you're, as long as patients don't eat or next to it, I think they'll be fine, right? And then, of course, the main thing is, you know, be, be cognizant of it because it does happen with topical application, but more importantly, you want to make sure the patients are getting enough out of the use of topical antibiotics so that their acne is controlled, and that's the main thing. These other issues, again, I mean, these are things that we all keep an eye on, but I think it's, I think it's important to, uh, to make, make light of it to the patients so that they're aware of, of the risks of antibiotics because there's a lot of unnecessary antibiotic phobia, but there's also a lot of discussion of what do antibiotics do in acne. So a little bit of discussion mechanism, I think, is really important. And then, of course, the issues of pregnancy. You know, the categories have changed. A lot of discussion topics in pregnant women have changed. I, I personally don't have a, an issue with a lot of topical, topical issues in pregnancy or topical therapies, but I tell the patients, discuss it with your OB, you know, especially in breastfeeding, and I, I have even more liberty to, to give them what I think works. And unfortunately, a lot of patients who are pregnant or, you know, they're right out of pregnancy, their lower jawline and their, and their uh, lower part of their face, it really flares up. And, excuse me, I think um, a lot of things to remember with, with that type of acne, it's kind of like migraines and cold sores. You know, you, you get those patients, they feel the spots before they show up. And that's where I have to make sure that they're putting a drug like Onexin on early and often. Right? And if, you know, if you've ever played golf, you know, you don't just hit the ball, you treat through. That's kind of where Onexin fits for me. So I think that's where some of that discussion topic fits in. Okay, so just a reminder, it fits in, it was approved November 14, first one in a pump, you know, once daily, actually, Acadia was in a pump, I, I correct myself, but it's a 50-gram pump applied once a day, and this is the message that will come from it. So clindamycin goes after peacnes, benzoyl peroxide goes after peacnes, but again, anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, they all work in harmony. So there's a little video which we'll watch. Gel is the only FDA-approved combination of clindamycin phosphate 1.2% and benzoyl peroxide BPO 3.75% for the once-daily topical treatment of acne vulgaris in patients 12 years of age and older. Anextin gel targets acne in three distinct ways, anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, and keratolytic. Anextin gel delivers two proven agents to the site of action to target both the visible acne lesions on the surface as well as the acne below the surface. The clindamycin phosphate is a lincosamide antibacterial with known anti-inflammatory effect. The BPO component of Anextin gel is an oxidizing agent with bactericidal properties. In addition, it can exert keratolytic effects. Anextin gel, the only FDA-approved clindamycin phosphate 1.2% and benzoyl peroxide 3.75% combination for the once-daily treatment of both comedonal and inflammatory acne. Wasn't that great? It's like the safety video on the plane. You know. <laughs> but the, the point I want to bring back about that is the discussion with patients about the difference between infection and inflammation. And you should have a good script about what is made by bacteria and what is made by the host 
so that they understand when you're using antibiotics, it's about treating the process that your skin makes and not just about what bacteria make. So I think a little bit of that discussion point goes a long way in this era of antibiotic phobia. And you know, those of you who practice like, like me in San Diego you know, with the anti-vaxxers and a lot of the granolas, you've you got to have the script down or they're just going to roll up on you. So, of course, we're in granola town, so that's okay. Anyway, point of the exercise is, again, reminding yourself of the mechanism, make sure that everything fits, but also thinking about the, the morphology of acne that you might treat with that, with that approach. Okay, so we already did this. Come, come on, go away, video. Okay, here we go. So those of you who have done research, you know the, how a trial works. You know, it's a 12-week trial for most acne drugs. You know, most of theirs are, are double-blinded. You know, nobody knows what they get. Placebo is a bad word in a topical trial. I always like to use the word vehicle because in a, in a topical trial in dermatology, you want the vehicle to actually do something. You want to see a vehicle actually have a little bit of a win. You don't want to see placebo like you see with a pill or with, you know, injectable, right? So the point of the exercise is the vehicle should be tolerable. The vehicle should have some impact and the vehicle should be compatible with the active, right? You still want to see a good enough delta that the active ingredient did a good job, but you still want to see the vehicle actually not have, you know, patient was set on fire or a patient, you know, ran to the chiropractor or whatever else, right? You want the vehicle to actually be a good thing to put on in the, in the vehicle arm. So in this trial, there was two great improvement. They were looking at 12 weeks in both papules, pustules, but also in comedones, and more importantly... <laughs> Excuse me. More importantly, was the amount of patients who achieved a clear endpoint. Okay, which in 12 weeks is a lot to ask. And when you're dealing with post-inflammatory erythema or pigment, you have to make sure that those patients achieve that endpoint, and that as an investigator, you are making sure that you've done the counts correctly and not mistakenly count those as active spots, because that's the, again the difference between endpoint success and failure. But the point of that also is also measuring how much peeling was there, how much did they itch, was there burning and stinging, was there anything that you know, was potential for someone to read it in a package insert that says, oh, I don't want to use this, or you know, watch out for this. Now, if you look at the proportion of the vehicle arm versus the next arm, it was obviously double as far as the success in controlling both inflammation and the comino count, okay? I look at this, though, as saying, is this the number that says, does the drug work, right? Because we look at percentages and we say, well, it only worked 35% of the time. I would actually go back to, sorry, let's go back to this number and say, this should be more your definition of, does the drug work? Because your endpoint of success is your counts, okay? So to say that at 12 weeks, there was 60% reduction of papules and pustules with this drug alone, says that, okay, we're on the right track of what this medicine's trying to do. For this to be how many achieved improvement is a little bit subjective, but it's also saying, do we, do we know what we define as too great improvement, right? Because in the clinic, it's very different than in a research trial. So the reason I bring this up is because of the definition of work, and I want you guys all to have that kind of clear no matter what we're talking about, whether it's this or anything else, what does work actually mean to you? Okay? And 26% of the subjects were clear, almost clear. This is a research trial of 12 weeks. Acne doesn't always last 12 weeks, right? 
So you wouldn't say, okay, 12 weeks, sorry, you're a failure, you know, thanks for playing, adios. You would say, okay, we're on the right track, let's keep going. Do we add or subtract? Do we do something else with it? In the real world, it's very different than a monotherapy clinical trial. And then this is where, again, looking at comedones and the reduction of comedones dispels the old mantra that you need retinoids to do this job, okay? And we were, a lot of us were groomed that retinoids take care of comedones, antibiotics and benzoyl peroxide take care of papules. That's no longer the case because acne is not a sandwich. It goes by inflammation that causes all different morphology. And that's, again, where this data comes from, okay? So you think about this. It's like, why is this important? Well, think about your patient with the $70 copay. Think about your patient with a high deductible. If you have to choose one drug and you know this data and they're pretty mild to moderate, do you go down this path, right? So that's the take-home message from some of this discussion point. Same thing again with the inflammatory component. Maybe you have someone with 30 comedones but maybe 10 to 15 papules and they can only afford one drug. Maybe this is the one that you say, all right, Let's go to town and see how this works, right? Because we have comfort level with the improvement data at three months. Okay. The other thing that was interesting was this was an open-label study in darker skin types, skin types five to six. Um, and they, they studied 20 patients. A lot of them went, you know, went to uh, one grade improvement, which is important, but they looked at leisure count reduction. They also looked at how much improvement they had in the texture of their skin, the pigment, and the global severity. And you see, again, you know, this is a patient who was graded and moderate. Excuse me. And then you see them here at 12 weeks, and they're labeled as almost clear. And this is, again, with one drug using it all over the face every day. Okay? So I go back to that message. Do we think about the patient who can only afford one drug or only can use one drug because of compliance or whatever else? And that's where we, we see some of this data and some of these pictures, and we say, okay, we're, we're on the right track. This is, again, another patient, lower face acne. You see a lot of little papules through here. This is almost clear at 12 weeks, okay? So these pictures should be a guideline of how often do I want to see these patients back? What am I doing for them if they're using one drug all over their face? What should they expect? These are the endpoints of, of success for them. Same with a patient like this, okay? So, again, you know, an accident is in... Is it's preserved the benzoyl peroxide well. So I don't, I have a lot of patients with darker skin type. I don't worry about bleaching. I don't have them, you know, put it on before bedtime. I just have them do it in the morning. But more importantly, there's, it's water-based, so there's no alcohol. There's no issues with a lot of the issues of burning stinging that some of the other uh, cheaper benzoyl peroxides have dealt with. And then, of course, you know, there's going to be a few issues. You know, it's always the same patient, right? It's that, oh, I got a rash. Oh, and it itches and it burns and blah, blah, blah. It's always the, there's always one in the trial who says the same thing. Obviously, when it's 0.4%, it makes you say, okay, who's the 0.4%? Where are you? So, again, I think, you know, you want to keep in mind these issues can happen, but at the same time, it's, it's important to, you know, to kind of work through it with cleanser, moisturizer, and whatever uh, treatment program you have with them. Okay. This was a comparative trial. <coughs> Excuse me. I guess that we do a forte, which is interesting because in many ways, they're two different drugs, right? Adapalene's a retinoid, Lunexin, benzoyl peroxide, Clinda. But at the same time, you look at, you know, how many issues that patients had, and they say, okay, well, was it dry? Did it peel? And everything else. So in some ways, it's not a fair fight, but in other ways, it's a method of making comparison of the impact of benzoyl peroxide. 
and I think more importantly about local skin reactions, you look at around the first four weeks and you say, okay, this is where patients will either keep going or they'll stop. And I, I think it's an important measure of looking at, you know, just a comparison of what the patient experience is. All right, so these are the, the bullet points of Onexin. Again, keeping that in mind, and then let's go on to Retin-A Micro, which, again, it's not your, uh, not your father's Retin-A Micro, but it's, uh, it's the new and improved Retin-A Micro, if you will. So the new Retin-A Micro is in a pump at 0.06 and 0.08. And, again, Retin-A was like ice cream, right? It had so many different percentages, so many different vehicles. They even tried it in a lotion. It didn't work. But now the, the Microsphere Gel is the best delivery of Retin-A that we have available. And again, there was this, always this discussion of, does it create dermatitis? Is there retinoid dermatitis? Is there anything else? The mechanism of retinoids is to create desquamation and create a reduction of comedones by changing differentiation. So patients who come in and they're red and they're peeling, first thing you say to them, it's good. That means you're using the drug. So keep moisturizing over that. Make sure you're wearing sunblock and let's keep going because all of that skin that you see that's coming off is the bad acne skin that you won't have to deal with in three months from now. So all of this discussion point about irritation, and you know, I wouldn't use it on areas that are inflamed or have exemptness change, but I would make sure that the patients are, are using appropriate emollients and everything else to, to, to mitigate some of those effects. You know, I grew up in Wisconsin. We, we had you know, a lot of cold days, a lot of warm days, a lot of humid days. The, the point of the exercise is, you know, everybody's going to have an issue with, is it too dry? Is it too itchy to put on? Main thing, again, is to make sure that they're doing something for their comfort level so that they don't stop their compliance. And that's where some of this, again, this concept of irritation, you want to remind them that, you know, you're actually using the medicine as things are working. So that's a good thing. And then the issues with pregnancy, I basically, you know, I stopped using retinoids in pregnancy because the OBs just freak out. And I just tell the patients, look, we're going to start this when you're done. But I think, you know, there's still a lot of issues that need to be discussed. Now, unfortunately, you have retinoids available over the counter, so that takes that discussion out of, the, out, of the, out of the equation. So I think you just have to do the right thing for the patient in front of you and discuss, you know, risk benefits and, and go from there. So, you know, I was born again in 1967. This is where, again, the retin-A timeline has had a lot of activity. And you see this gap here because... With the reformulation of Retin-A, now it's in a good microsponge delivery as well, the gel that, that works. But, uh, sorry, that works to deliver the medicine probably better than some of these older vehicles. But there used to be a Retin-A gel, and there used to be a point one. It used to you know, rip people up, but it was great because people really did well. And these new percentages, 0.06 and 0.08, I have found a nice sweet spot of being tolerable, but yet also finding the efficacy. So I think you know, we're in a good place with Retin-A where it is now. And this is the concept of the microsphere. So one of the older ways of looking at microsphere was you put it on and you spread, but you don't want to rub too hard because the microsphere will actually evaporate and all the active will come out in one place. But these newer microsphere gels have taken that out of the equation so that you can actually apply even with a little bit of, of, of texture and they actually can, can spread well. So I, th I think it's important to, to recognize how the patients put... Uh, put retin-A microsphere on. In a split-based study, they actually preferred it over the non-encapsulated version, and, and that was a good sign. So I think it's important to recognize how a microsphere gel actually does its job. And then again, the, you know, the pump, I think, is good because you avoid a lot of overuse. 
you know, we used to say in the old days when it came in a tube, you know, take the pea size and cut it in half because it's probably too much, right? And now with the pump, they know exactly how much they're getting, and that pump amount that's delivered is enough to cover the whole thing. So that, I think that's a good, a good thing for not only stabilizing the drug, but also for d- delivering the correct amount where there's not overuse. And that, again, goes back to photostability. And we, we have patients use retinoids at night not to protect them, but more to protect the drug. I mean, that was the old mantra, to protect retinoids from UV breakdown and, and the stability was more preserved if you use it at nighttime. Now we're seeing that, you know, with, with any kind of UV exposure, things are still very stable. And you see that with, with this, new preser- uh, this new formulation. But I'm, I'm still a fan of using retinoids at night and some of the other medicines in the day. I think it's just, it adds to routine. And this is where some of the, some of the trial data comes into play here. So again, at, um, <coughs> at 12 weeks, two patients here at 0.1.04, they were all studied against the vehicle. They were looking at their outcomes. And then you see through here again, 45% improvement in the, in the same amount of group. But again, this is at 12 weeks, right? Again, acne doesn't last 12 weeks for a lot of people. It's a six-month disease or it's a long-term disease. And that's where, again, I say, okay, in 12 weeks, you're not, a, you're not a success. That means we can just keep going, right? But in a trial, if you're just using this alone, you say, okay, well, then we'll stop, right? So that's where, again, you use, this, use these numbers to your benefit in, the, in treating these patients correctly. And even as early as two weeks, you'll see patients who say, okay, things are peeling, but I'm seeing my texture you know, is better. I'm feeling my face a little bit more. I'm seeing a little bit more improvement in the, in the papules. I think this is where you figure out how often you want to see these patients back when they're on this kind of program. And then, of course, this issue of facial shine is very interesting because, again, you know, patients don't want to look oily. They don't want to look like you know, they, they glow. But at the same time, they don't want to look dry, and they don't want to peel, right? So it's a very interesting assessment of how much shine was there and how much oiliness. This is where retinoids really have their benefit in, you know, those, those kids who have a lot of comedones or they're oily like in the afternoon or, you know, those patients who have a lot on their forehead. That's where retinoids really do the best job for, for, the, for their acne and not, not just thinking about spots. You want to treat the whole, whole area of the face. And... What's really important is a lot of patients, you know, patients in the study, only three of them dropped out. And, th- and in this study, only 14 dropped out. So that says a lot about the tolerability of these new Retin-A formulations and no irritation at week two, which is when things would be at their worst and when patients would, would technically want to stop. So I think that's a good sign also where retinoids didn't have that kind of success rate with, when it came to compliance. And then again, with, you know, with darker skin, females with lower face, they didn't have any issues with bleaching, very little bit of dryness. I mean, they, they could tolerate over it. More importantly was, they, it felt like it was an adult acne drug, which I think is a very interesting assessment because, again, we're not just dealing with adolescents anymore. We're dealing with everybody of all age groups, of all genders, all skin types when it comes to acne. And then, of course, you know, the irritation, burning, stinging, these are all things that are going to happen. But if it's this low a percentage, I mean, I, you know, obviously in a trial, it's one thing, but in the real world, we'll find ways to mitigate that. You know, we'll, we'll use whatever emollient barrier device cream, whatever else goes with, you know, making the, the tolerability better. We'll figure out a way to, to make that work for them. And then, of course, you know, the, the adherence numbers we already talked about. 
So again, you know, this is the new retin-A, this is not your old, old man's retin-A, and I think you know, we, we found a new way to put it into practice, but even more so, 50-gram pump will last quite a bit you know, of time for the, for the acne recipe. So again, it goes back to you know, treating obviously with history, but going back to the myth that you need retinoids for comatoids alone, I think that's all been dispelled, and then of course the safety profile, which we discussed, and, and then the microsphere way to use it. So this is the acne program for ortho. They're going to be out at the booth. You can talk to any of the ortho people about, you know, coverage and everything else in your, in your area. But I think, you know, using combinations to their fullest, optimizing their mechanism, and then thinking about tolerability of the vehicle, these are all things that you want to take into account when you're uh, making your choices. So with that, I will say my voice. And if anybody has any questions, please uh, feel free to speak up or raise your hand, or have at it. So sorry about my voice. My, my wife was laughing at me. She goes, you're going to talk in front of people? You sound like an idiot. And I said, well, I said, this is good for you, because then you don't have to listen to me the rest of the day. So anyway, I'll be here for the weekend. If you guys have any questions or anything else, please uh, feel free. And again, thank Ortho for sponsoring the meeting as well as for, uh, for sponsoring this session. So thank you guys. Oh, sorry. You know, oh, look at that. What kind of sunscreen do you recommend for acne patients with skin of color? You know, I am not a... I don't choose one sunscreen over another. I, I like the, uh, the La Roche-Posay uh, sunscreen anti-helios. For a lot of females, they like the base. It's easy to spread. It has some, you know, some very easy texture to it. Uh, the Neutrogena line has a, has a couple nice uh, zinc oxides. They, they work actually better for trunk and shoulders as well as the face. So there's, there's a, a couple good ones. The other one I really like is Solbar Shield. If you guys have ever tried that one, the Shield is probably the nicest of their line, even though they all work really well. So I don't particularly have one. I, I give patients, you know, a couple different ones to try. I tell, tell them you pick the one that, that you like, like best. Uh, what are your personal thoughts on Actipac? I honestly have not met my Cutania rep uh, in person. I, I was... I'll disclose, I've done a lot of clinical research with Cutania, and I was part of some of their marketing um, messaging to, to deliver Actipac. Uh, I think it makes, it's, a, it's a good drug, and it makes sense. I, I, I would probably go back to coverage in your area to say where does Actipac fit. Um, is the effect of Onextin on comatose unique, or is it applicable to other BPO clinomides? I think it's unique to the point of the vehicle tolerability, but it's probably, you know, the delivery of those active ingredients to the scene of the crime is probably what's going to, you know, account for, you know, how much improvement you see. So BPO and clindamycin inherently have those mechanisms, but I think if they're not compatible in the right vehicle or patients are not using the right, that vehicle that's tolerable, they're not going to get those benefits. What do you say to patients about using red day micro in the morning? I mean, I, mean, I just tell them to use it, truthfully. I mean, we're, we're in an era where people don't do anything once a day, right? So I just say, look, if you're going to use it, at least use it, right? But I tell them to use sunblock. I try to encourage them to use it at night if they can. If they say they can't or they work third shift or they, they just put it on the morning, I'm like, okay, have at it, right? But just, you know, make sure you wear sunblock every day and put it on again at lunchtime. Do you recommend applying medication first or moisturizer first? So... The two most common questions at the dermatology office are, how many stitches am I going to have, and what do I put on first, right? And I tell patients, I said, 
It's just like getting on the airplane. It doesn't matter if you get on first or last, it's, you're still on the plane. So just do whatever it takes. So same thing again with, with the active. I always like to put medicine on first and then moisturizer, then sunscreen. I think that's the, the layer cake phenomenon that I was raised with. But you know, honestly, if whatever patients like, I, I just tell them to do that. Okay. Very good, you guys. Keep it up. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.